Well, good morning. It's my privilege to be here again. My name is Wes Pastor, and uh, I am a pastor, have been a pastor for the last 30 years, and uh, am pleased to be able to bring the word to you this morning. Um, If I can find it here on my computer, it just decided to go bye-bye. Hold on for just a minute. While I'm messing around, I'd like to take the opportunity to introduce to you my three daughters who surprised me with the visit. Uh, we gathered together yesterday. They came up late Friday night. I, uh, a dear colleague of mine, when I used to teach at Miami University, uh, I actually was uh, friends with his son who uh, came to Christ through our ministry there at Miami University. And... Uh, uh, his father and I became good friends. He was an English professor at Miami for over 40 years. He suddenly passed away uh, on Tuesday morning. He was 94. It was, was unexpected. He was actually doing pretty well, uh, but he went downhill. And he had asked me to do his funeral. So uh, I flew out on uh, Thursday to Cincinnati. Uh, Miami University's in Oxford, Ohio, did the funeral. Came back yesterday and my girls were here, and uh, we had a wonderful time. We went to Acadia. and uh, So let me just introduce them. Lydia uh, is in the back there, then Hannah in the front next to her, Abby. And uh, so it's really been fun. They made me breakfast this morning. So I've been, I've been bacheloring it here uh, these last week, week or so, so it was nice to actually have breakfast, cook breakfast. Uh, that went real well. Um, now, by the way, on the marriage seminar, um, uh, I'd thrown that out as an idea of the elders, and uh, apparently they liked it. I don't know whether you like it, but uh, uh, we're going to try it. And uh, so Sue will come up. Um, I'm going to actually drive home late this week, get her, come back. I've got to do a few things at home. And uh, um, it will be on the ABCs of marriage, acceptance, balance, and connection, which, of course, includes communication. So if you like communication for the C, you can use that one instead. I use connection. I think it will be helpful. We'll go for an hour and a half from 6.30 to 8, and uh, hopefully that will stimulate marriages that are healthy and perhaps give some hope to marriages that are struggling a bit. So uh, we'll look forward to, to doing that a week from Tuesday. All right. With all that said, would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you. For this time, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. We understand, Father, that uh, as the Lord Jesus prayed the night before he was crucified, sanctify them in thy word. Thy word is truth. And we know that it's through this word that you are in the process of not only saving us initially, introducing us to grace, but saving us finally when that great day comes and we are glorified. We thank you for this time now. We commit it to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, the prospect of going blind, uh, it's, it's a frightful prospect. Um, my first brush with that came several years ago when I experienced a detached retina. Some of you perhaps have had that. Um, and if you do, you know there's a couple of types of detached retinas. There's the less serious type, MAC on, means that the macula did not detach. Uh, and then there's the more serious type, MAC off. 
And when you hear Mac off and you understand what that means, you know there's a real possibility that that eye will be will remain legally blind. Well, my retina surgeon made me no promises. He says it's Mac off. It's the worst kind of retina detachment, but we'll do the best that we can. And he did a great job. And uh, as a result, uh, with some proper lenses to help me, uh, my sight is almost normal. So I'm very grateful for that. But it was scary, you know, the six weeks of the patch over your eye, the gas bubble in your eye, you're hoping that it all works out. And it did. Recently, I was, about two years ago, I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. A lot of you older folk will know what that's like. You know, blindness is one of the results of that as well, because those tiny little blood vessels in the eyes, they deteriorate quickly. It's kind of terrifying to think about spiritual blindness. But as overwhelming as that is, I I said spiritual, I meant physical blindness. As overwhelming as that is, there is a far more intimidating blindness, as we talked about last week, spiritual blindness. I said last week that every person is born blind. We looked at or heard Third John chapter 11. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does or practices evil has not seen God. He's got a problem. He's spiritually blind. And this blindness not only condemns a person to a life of missing true beauty, but to a life of utter darkness and misery. We talked about that last week. A place called hell awaits those who remain spiritually blind. But there is an antidote. There is an antidote to this. And that antidote, again, I'm doing some review, is seeing true beauty. In fact, what every single person needs is to be able to behold the beauty of God. That's really the antidote to all of our ills. To be able to behold the beauty of God. What we desperately need is the miracle of sight. Now, our passage today in 2 Corinthians 3 can help us. But first, I want to take a few more minutes just to make certain we're clear about this problem of spiritual blindness. I want to remind you that our introduction into God's grace through justification you could say, is our initial sighting of God's beauty in Christ. That's the first time that we behold the beauty of God in the face of Christ. Remember we said last week, no one can come to Christ unless the Father draws him. John 6.44, John 6.65, unless the Father grants it to him. We're dead in our sin. We're spiritually blind. We're enslaved to our sin. We're unable to behold the beauty of God. And we're indifferent at best and hostile at worst to Christ. So what is it that happened to us? What happened to you when you came to Christ? As we said, quoting the famous hymn, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. That's what was needed. God had to awaken me. He had to awaken me from my spiritual stupor. And when he did, I savingly believed. I gazed. I beheld Jesus Christ. That's what you did. It might not have been a dramatic moment like that, but if we were to dissect it, at some point, that's what happened. 
You savingly beheld your Savior. That's what happened. And you were justified. Everything changed. You were washed. Every one of us was freed at that moment to begin a lifetime of beholding, which happens to be, as we'll see in our text today, the key to holiness, without which, the author of Hebrews tells us, without holiness, no one, no one shall see the Lord. So, with that brief introduction, take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Let me start in verse 12 and read to the end of the chapter. Paul says, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech, and are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face, so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of which was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Now, Paul is defending himself. Let me give some context here. He's defending himself against the false teachers. And these false teachers were challenging his apostleship on on several grounds, including his seeming lack of love, because he was always traveling, he wasn't present there in Corinth, his lack of eloquence. They said his letters were weighty, but his presence was very weak. His choice not to receive compensation. Uh, The false teachers were saying that real apostles are compensated. Uh, And his seeming lack of authority. He only threatened severe action, never seemed to follow through on it. And all of this seemed to uh, undermine his claim to be an apostle. Perhaps most of all was his lack of letters of commendation. And, And this... He refutes, if we read all of chapter 3, we would see this refutation. He refutes this uh, all the way through chapter 7, and his essential argument is this. His essential argument is, I don't need letters of commendation, because by God's Spirit and through the new covenant era, which has descended upon the church in Corinth, the Corinthians themselves are his letters of commendation. And thus, the Corinthians certify his apostleship. That's his argument. Now, as he extols that new covenant here in chapter 3, I want you to notice its dominant motif. It's freedom. It's liberty. And it's the freedom or liberty to see spiritually. Again, let me just reread verses 15 to 18. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Prior to Christ, there was a veil over every one of our eyes. 
over the eyes of our hearts, so that when we heard the gospel, we were unable to see. Oh, we could perhaps comprehend it cognitively, but our hearts were covered by sin. But when we turned to the Lord, when that eye diffused that quickening ray, the veil was removed and it produced a freedom, an ability to behold the glory of the Lord. To behold, if you will, true beauty. But what is that beauty? What is it that we're now free to behold? Well, in a nutshell... Simply put, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, let's continue in 2 Corinthians, picking up in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God. The false teachers were doing that. But by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves. He's poking at those false teachers. That's what they're doing. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's one of my favorite verses. Unlike the false apostles who preached themselves, Paul preached Christ Jesus as Lord, who is the very radiance of God's glory, the writer to Hebrews tells us. And that glory, that dazzling beauty, is most clearly seen in his death Burial and resurrection. Christ, in his person and work, in his humiliation and exaltation, as our suffering servant and as our King of kings, is the very essence. Jesus Christ is the very essence of God's beauty. He's the very essence of beauty. And by the way, who's... Who's not drawn to things beautiful? Who's not drawn to that? I would venture that some of you live where you live for that very reason. I was disappointed. I wanted to take the girls up to Cadillac Mountain. That view just being up there. I mean, I know it's not a really tall mountain, but it's the highest mountain on the East Coast. And the view is just, it's renewing to go up and see that. Who's not drawn to that? Who's not drawn to New England in the fall foliage? Vermont makes millions of dollars every year just so people can come up and see the pretty leaves. Who's not drawn to a park like Yosemite? Beautiful, beautiful. Who's not drawn to Hawaii? We went there on our 25th wedding anniversary. My wife doesn't really like to travel But she said, that's one place I'd go back to. Yeah, it's beautiful. But these are all just tokens of beauty. They're all just artwork of the master 
artist. Jesus Christ is the gold standard for beauty. So the question is, if we're willing to take God's word at that, the question is, how can we behold him? How can we keep Jesus Christ in our spiritual viewfinder? And how do we resist the counterfeit beauty that Satan devises in order to lure our hearts away from him? Let me suggest three ways. Three ways to behold him. First, to behold him in creation. Here's a question. What do you see, pun intended, when you read Genesis chapter 1? What are the most important words? Let me ask it that way. In Genesis chapter 1. I know you're really thinking. You're really thinking about that. Some of you would like to shout out the answer, but it's not proper to do that in church. (laughs) Unless you're in a Pentecostal church, and then they're shouting all the time. But not in this church. What are the most important words in Genesis chapter 1? May I suggest that it's these three seemingly benign little words. And God said. And God said. Now, I believe the Bible teaches that God created the universe in six days through the agency of His spoken word. And John the Apostle tells us that that word was Christ. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. All things were created by that Word. And nothing came into being that has come into being. And of course we learn later down in John chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. Yes, that's right. We beheld His glory. What a picture of our Savior who by His resurrection became the first fruits of the new creation. He was the one through whom came the old creation, and He's the one through whom comes the new creation. Not even Solomon in all of his glory can compare with the splendor of our exalted King. I mean, in speaking of creation, have you ever just thought of the changes in season? I left Maine, and it was... Uh, uh, dry, no snow. I came back and there was all that snow. And I love winter. I think winter's a great time because it kills all the insects. That's the favorite part of winter. The South doesn't know anything about this. And uh, it's our best kept secret. But think about it. Winter time, it's kind of like death, isn't it? The winter of our despair, the writers say. Springtime, what do you think of when you think of spring? A new birth. Life. It's kind of a death, burial, resurrection motif built right in to the creation, isn't there? And even in our daily routines, what are you going to do tonight? You're going to sleep, often used in Scripture as a metaphor for death. And then in the morning, Lord willing, you're going to wake up. Life. 
Um, I have the privilege of living with a woman who sleeps very deeply and wakes up very slowly. So I tell her I get to witness a resurrection every single morning. But that's built into the system, isn't it? Sleep, death, rising, life. So we see Christ in creation. Second, we see Him, we can behold Him in the church. We're going to celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's table here in a moment. We see in that table the death of Christ, don't we? What do we say at the end? Whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup proclaims what? Proclaims His death until He comes. Obviously implied in that is the resurrection. Or in baptism, we see the washing of our sins. uh, And if you celebrate baptism in a Baptist context, they would say that the going under the water and coming up signifies the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We see Christ in the sacraments, don't we? We behold Him in the sacraments. But we also see Christ in the lives of other Christians in the church. Now, I know the little limerick, to live above with saints we love, oh, that'll be glory, but to live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. Yes, we're not perfect, we're flawed, we get that. We understand that, but nevertheless, do we not see the love of Christ, the kindness of Christ in a brother or a sister? We hear him when we hear a brother or sister say, I forgive you. I forgive you. Yes, I forgive you. We hear that forgiveness that was echoed on the cross, do we not? What did Jesus say? Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Yes, that's our Savior. We see our Savior in the lives of those in whom He dwells by His Spirit. Yes. And then finally in His Word. I mean, I was cutting, 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 cutting. Ed said, you've got to get it down to at least an hour. And so I was working, trying to cut this sermon. Think about all the ways we see Christ, for instance, in the New Testament. Think of all the motifs, like the temple motif. What do you got there? The priests, the sacrificial animals, all the feasts culminating in the Day of Atonement. They all point us to the beauty of His death, burial, and resurrection, do they not? What does the Bible say? He was delivered up because of our iniquities. He was raised... Romans 4.25, because of our justification, so that He could present the sacrifice of Himself in the true Holy of Holies. He had to be raised so that He could ascend to the Father's right hand and present that sacrifice. The sacrifice of Himself. He's everything. He's a high priest. He's a sacrifice. And that's what He's doing right now. And aren't you glad that He ever lives to present that sacrifice? He is our perpetual propitiation, keeping us in God's favor until finally this great work of salvation is completed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. How about the three-day motifs? You know, if you've got a good concordance, an exhaustive concordance, you know, Strong's concordance, 
Young's Concordance. They've got a lot of them for different versions of the Bible. Just look up the word three or the word third, and you will be amazed how often it refers to some sort of a death, burial, resurrection motif. I mean, think about it. Abraham and Isaac scaling Mount Moriah on what day? The third day, it says. And, of course, Isaac was metaphorically resurrected there on Mount Moriah. Think of God's calling Israel to the wilderness. He did it three times. And then He appeared to them in Exodus 19 on the third day. Uh, Benjamin, which was almost annihilated in the book of Judges, he was saved from that annihilation, the Bible says, on the third day. Think of the northern kingdom. Remember the tribes split? The ten tribes were in the northern kingdom? Think of their restoration. In Hosea chapter 6, he says of those tribes, in two days I will restore you. On the third day, I will raise you up. Or think about Elijah raising the widow's son. How did he do it? He laid on the sun one, two, three times, and the sun came back to life. Think of Hezekiah recovering from a certain death. Isaiah had already told him, get your house in order, you're going to die. And he prayed, and he prayed, and on the third day, he was restored for 15 years. Or how about Esther? What did she do? She prayed and fasted for how long? Three days and three nights in order to save her people from destruction. And of course, everyone, everyone knows the story of Jonah. Three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. God wants us to fixate our minds on the dazzling beauty of a Savior who came that we might have life and have it to the full. He made the ultimate sacrifice for us. What did Jesus say? Greater love has no man than this. Then He laid down His life for His friends. And that sacrifice, that willingness to lay down His life as a ransom for many is also depicted throughout the New Testament, of course, starting with the Incarnation. What does it say? Jesus took the form of a bond slave and was made in the likeness of men. I mean, let me ask you, is not your heart drawn to that babe in a manger? There he is. Took on flesh. What a sacrifice to become one of us with all the limitations. And how about His service and sacrifice during His earthly ministry? No matter the hour, no matter how tired He was, He was healing, He was feeding, He was comforting and assuring, He was even raising the dead. Is not His life of sacrificial service an inspiration To us all, are you not drawn to it when you think of what's good and holy and right and beautiful? Doesn't that capture it? Of course, most significantly, his sacrifice on the cross where he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, it pleased the Father, Isaiah tells us, to crush his son, who willingly laid down his life for the sheep. We sing, and can it be, 
that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood. Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Yes, incomprehensible, incomparable beauty. Yes. Now, obviously, we could gaze at Christ. We could gaze at His amazing love and sacrifice from every page of Scripture. For make no mistake about it, the Bible is the book of Christ. From Genesis to Maps, it's about Jesus Christ. The law, the prophets, the writings, the gospels, the epistles, the the apocalypse, all bear witness of Him. It is these that bear witness of Me, Jesus said. But why should we orient our lives around Scripture? Hearing it preached, reading it, meditating on it, memorizing on it. What benefit is there to letting Scripture dwell richly within us? We know the Bible says that, but isn't enough of anything not a good thing? Well, again, let's go back to 2 Corinthians 3, just in your mind. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being what? Are being transformed into that image. You see the the formula there? You become what you behold. Whatever it is you're beholding, whatever it is you're treasuring in your mind's eye, That's what you're becoming. You know, I can remember when I was in high school playing baseball in the state of Ohio. I grew up during the era of the big red machine. If you don't know what that means, it's fine. It passed. But there was a time when the Cincinnati Reds were the kings of baseball. And all the players on my high school baseball team had numbers that corresponded to their position on the big red machine. Uh, And we all admired them. I was a devotee of Pete Rose. Now, I know he has fallen from grace because of his gambling habits, but he was a pretty good baseball player. And one of the things that he did was the belly flop. Now, that wasn't a new way of sliding, but if you've ever watched a baseball game, it's become the predominant way. They go in head first. It's not very smart, actually. Um, You know, your head, your hands, those are things to protect. But... Nevertheless, Pete Rose did it, and if Pete Rose did it, I was going to do it. You see, we become, we imitate what we behold. And so, the key to holiness is imitating Jesus Christ, and you imitate Him as you behold Him. You're transformed into Him as you gaze onto His image. There's no other way to become holy. You can't white-knuckle your way to holiness. This is a supernatural faith transaction. And as you behold Him, there is a metamorphosis that's taking place. Now, that doesn't mean we do nothing. Next week, we'll talk about what we do. 
It's the natural outworking of beholding him. But it starts with beholding him. This is how Christ is formed in us. How we bear the fruit of the Spirit. How we put on love. How we become a person who actually loves the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. This is how we fulfill God's law. Through beholding God's Son. Now, in closing, let me be frank. Beauty talk is great. I don't know of anybody who doesn't like the word beauty. Beauty talk is great. But Satan is not sitting by passively as we stoke the fires of our passion for Christ's beauty. Oh, no. He's working overtime in order to counterfeit that beauty. So So what must we do? What can we do to fight that counterfeiting process? It's simple. By the power of the Spirit who dwells in us, and by the freedom from sin's power, which is ours by faith in Christ, we must resist Satan. James 4 says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So let me close with some practical ways to go about resisting the devil. To resist the devil, there are two particular things which must be kept in mind. First, we must have a genuine attraction for Christ. It's kind of like in marriage. You have to have a genuine attraction for your spouse. You've got to cultivate that. You have to stimulate that. You can't just let that go by the wayside. You know, there's many things that I admire about my wife. And I've actually written it out on a little list and I've posted it on my bulletin board next to my desk. It's helpful for me to review those things because it's easy to focus on the negative, isn't it? Two of the things that I really, really admire about my wife is kindness and honesty. Those two things are precious to me. Now, Jesus Christ is our eternal spouse. He's our heavenly bridegroom. And we resist the devil by working hard to admire his beauty. And then, as the psalmist enjoins, offering that beauty up as a continual sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. In in other words, by gazing at Christ with our eyes of faith in creation, seeing Christ there, in the church, seeing Christ there, and especially on the pages of Scripture, we're cultivating and feeding a taste and increasing desire for His beauty rather than the counterfeit beauty of the world. That's first. Second, and perhaps harder, but necessary to resisting the devil, we must actively and ruthlessly forsake all other beauties. We resist the devil by continually forsaking his counterfeit beauty in order to avoid committing spiritual adultery. So here's the question. How do you identify a counterfeit beauty? If you need to ruthlessly and actively forsake those counterfeit beauties, how do you identify them? How do you identify something that's become an idol of the heart? How do you identify it? Two ways. First, it's an idol of the heart if it's at all contrary 
to God's Word. It's an idol of the heart if in any way it goes against God's Word. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. If it's contrary to God's Word and you fixated on it, it's an idol of the heart. Scripture identifies a plethora of these idols of sinful behaviors that must be forsaken. For instance, there's a number of those idols listed in Colossians 3.5. You don't need to turn there. I'll just list them. Immorality, which is all forms of sex outside of marriage. Impurity, which is any sexual perversion, including all forms of pornography. Passion, any uncontrolled appetites for things like food or alcohol or shopping online. All evil desires, those are all idols of the heart. And, of course, greed. An unhealthy lust for material prosperity. You see, if Christ's beauty is to captivate our souls, these idols must be ripped out by the roots without mercy, without pity. We can't flirt with them, dilly-dally around with them. And second, it's an idol of the heart if it at all rivals our affection for Christ. These are things that are normally good things. In fact, we would say wonderful things in many cases, but they have become too important to us. Jesus said this, We cannot be his disciples unless we hate our father, our mother, our wife, our children, our brothers and our sisters, and even our own lives. We don't like those words. You won't hear that verse quoted on Focus on the Family. But Jesus said it. Jesus said it. And he also said we cannot be his disciple unless we give up all of our possessions. Now, what on earth does that mean? To hate loved ones, to give up all possessions is to so treasure Christ that those things ultimately no longer matter. Ultimately no longer matter. And there's a test for this. You say, well, how do I know whether these things ultimately matter to me? I know I'm supposed to love my spouse and my children and my siblings. and I'm supposed to be a good steward of my possessions. How do I know whether or not they ultimately matter to me? Here's a little test. If you can't do without it in the present, if you can't be happy without a certain person or thing in the present, then I would submit to you that that person or thing has become an idol of the heart. Hobbies, Leisure time activities, health, fitness, pursuits, family, friends, even ministry can become things that you're flirting with and are in danger or have become idols of the heart. And if they do, they must be utterly forsaken without mercy, without pity, 
Solomon says we must, we must watch over our hearts with all diligence, for from them flow the issues of life. We must root out all competing attractions if the beauty of God in the face of Christ is to truly capture our affections. Let me say that again. We must root out all competing attractions if the beauty of God in the face of Christ is truly to capture our affections. So I say to those that are here today that don't know Christ, this is your problem. You've got competing attractions. And Jesus Christ wants to reveal himself to you, but you must forsake those things that matter more to you than him. Like he said, you cannot be my disciple if these things matter more. Even your own life, your life's dreams must be forsaken. Now, he might give them back to you, but you have to let him do that. You don't hold on to those things. He says, come to me empty-handed. Turn from your sin. Stop loving your sin. And let me be your Savior. I will take care of you. Will you come to him? Will you come to him? Will you forsake everything for him? And so too, my brothers and sisters, I admonish you, be captivated with the beauty of Christ. Do business with those things that are impeding your gaze. And make it your purpose to behold Christ in creation, in the church, and most of all through his word, forsaking all others so long as you live for his glory. And for your happiness. Would you pray with me please? Father we thank you. That you have been pleased to reveal yourselves to us. In your son. Who is the radiance of your glory. And the exact representation of your nature. And who said. If you have seen me. You have seen the father. We thank you. That the word became flesh and not only dwelt among us, but died for us. And on the third day rose again from the dead for our justification. We thank you for all these things. Help us, Lord, to pursue him with all of our hearts. We pray in his name. Amen.